Hello, everybody. That's my Chuck impression. Welcome to JavaScript Jabber. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the Facebook Radio and the voice for being a mind, but you're stuck with me today since Chuck's not here because he has something better to do. With me on our panel, we have the man in the purple room, Mr. AJ O'Neill. How are you doing, AJ? Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from a shave and a haircut. Yes, we were just discussing that uh, with the haircut, AJ is looking more, I think the term we used was distinguished, especially with the gray around the temples and stuff. So you can see that in the video. Uh, he's got a long way to go to catch up with me in terms of gray, but I hide all mine by shaving it. <laughs> anyway, also coming to us live from Tel Aviv, Mr. Dan Shapiro. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing fine with lots of gray. Lots uh, of gray. Hardly anything but gray. Right. Uh, and and uh, but other but unlike AJ, not a button-down shirt, rather just a t-shirt from right. warm and sunny Tel Aviv. Here I am. Dan is like, you got the gray. Show it loud. Show it proud. Exactly. And our very very special guest. Well, all our guests are very special. But uh, another special guest is Mr. Noam Rosenthal. How you doing, Noam? Doing great. How are you? Good. Uh, before we dive into our topic of the day, I want to give people a little background on who you are, what you do, why you're famous, and why people should give you money. For the last question, last question, because <laughs> why not? But um, <laughs> good answer, very good. Yeah. Uh, so I uh, work uh, currently at Google, a uh, Chromium team, uh, working on web standards uh, in a big-ish team where our charter or role is to make navigation experiences on the web better and smoother and nicer and web, make the web better for everyone. That's why I joined this team. Um, I actually started my career as a web developer. It was 25 years ago. And yeah, just about 25 years ago. Um, and um kind of stayed on, on that wheel until I got this opportunity to go into the browser and fix things in there. And um, uh, I was always passionate about making the web fast for everyone and, like, and better. So uh, after also being at Wix and meeting Dan there, working together a lot, um, I got back to browser development and after some freelance work, I'm at Google, and I'm happy to be involved in standards and shaping the API that everybody uses, hopefully, and, and also bringing my background as a web developer into that, um, uh, into development of browsers. So, yeah. Cool. Can you give us a little background of who this Google is? I haven't heard of them before. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I kid. Really, I kid. So uh, the topic of the day has been one of the more recently released features in CSS, the View Transitions API. Um, okay. And for those of you who are in the View community, no, this is not V-U-E. This is V-I-E-W, as in viewing things on your page. So uh, why don't you start out and give us a little background as to, I guess, how this all came about. I know in the past we've talked about other people that have been working on this for years, so it's certainly not a recent development, been in the works for a while. So uh, what's the history of, of the View Transitions API? 
So actually, this is a, a shout out to Jake Archibald, who dreamt this, uh, I think, about seven years ago. Started the... Uh, it has a lot of iterations of spec to do something that does what we're doing now with CSSP transition. Um, the idea is that uh, up until now, when you talk about animations on the web, uh, the best you could do natively with browser APIs is transition several properties of the same elements at the same time, like uh, transition opacity and move the element around, transform, and all that, or maybe do something with keyframes. Um, and if you needed anything more complicated than that, you'd have to go, for example, to WebGL, to Canvas. Um, you had to do things that were, even for things that are uh, as simple as sliding the whole screen from one page to another. Uh, you'd have to use very complicated things like React uh, transitions that uh, create both pages in the DOM and then make the transition. Uh, those things never really worked well. Um, also, also at Wix, we had like this quite complex system for whole page transitions that were, that is very, basic in what, we, what it can do, and it's very, very hard, difficult to make it perform. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up because, you know, like you mentioned, both of us worked at Wix. Mm -hmm. And um, for those of in our audience who don't know, Wix is a drag-and-drop uh, website uh, builder, uh, which means that you build your website by just, you know, dragging things around and right-clicking on things and enabling and disabling all sorts of properties on them. And in terms of, of the way that it works and what it can do, it was really very inspired by the old Flash system of being able to end, to do a lot of visual, visually pleasing things. And obviously, one of the things that they wanted to support from the get-go is all sorts of transitions. You know, if you're moving between pages in a website to be able to transition between the pages, kind of like you do in, in let's say, in a PowerPoint presentation. Or if, he, if a, a person hovers over something, then to do some sort of animation on transition with that sort of thing, or all sorts of scroll transitions and stuff like that. And I remember the people who were working on it, and it was such a huge challenge for them to actually implement it. Because one of the biggest challenges that people don't really think about is that you kind of need to keep both the start state and the end state in the DOM simultaneously. So, for example, to create also a, a page kind of transition, you effectively have to have essentially both pages loaded at the same time, let's say, and then create some sort of transition from one page to the other. Uh, otherwise, it just can't work in that when, when you build it in that way. And that was really, really hard to do because if you think about, let's say, building a web page in React and you've got the, you know, the virtual DOM or the component tree for, for page A and, you, and you then you build the component tree for page B, you don't have A and B in, you know, in the VDOM at the same time. It, it's really difficult to do. So yes, it plays a 
big burden on the developers to be able to implement it. I remember a lot of hacks, a lot of performance issues related to that, a lot of buggy code. It was just really difficult to get it to do the right thing. Are, are you remembering the same things that I am, Norm? Uh, yes, absolutely. Probably um, I, I joined Rex a little after you, but still. There was always, always issues with that. And um, which is the company that invested in this a lot for other companies probably just like uh, gave up on it. Yeah, one of the reasons that Wix kind of started as an SBA was the fact that it was really the only way to properly implement transitions between pages at the time. Uh, Now Wix has other reasons to be SBA. Other, Other frameworks have other reasons to be SBA. But back in the day, that was a big motivation because otherwise you just couldn't get that. I think uh, I'm not against SBAs as a like an ideology, uh, <laughs> but uh, I well some people are, but um, I feel that people should choose between SBA and MPA or that kind of architecture, not because of constraints that come from the web platform. Like that, our role as the web platform is to reduce those constraints. Then people can make their choices based on other things, ergonomics, how they build it, uh, some performance things, and where, where they maintain state. Um, I see SPA as great for uh, productivity style apps, things that are app heavy. Dashboards. Yeah. And maybe MPA for more like content web websites. And there are a lot of things that are in the middle. Um, but anyway... Yeah, just to finish on that point, though, the funny thing is that, like I said, you kind of needed to be SBA in order to be able to implement transitions. But the reality was that implementing transitions was often so challenging that most SBAs just didn't do it. So theoretically, they could, but practically, they didn't. Most SBAs, when you navigate it, you know, it looked exactly like an MPA baby faster, but that's about it. Yep. Um, so, going from what you said about uh, needing to have the two states of the of the view, the let's call that the old and new uh, states of the view. This is exactly what the CSS view transition does internally. Um, so it's a short explanation of how it works. When you start a view transition, we take the current state of affairs, what you have right now in the DOM. We capture images of the elements that you say participate in the transition. Then you you tell us, the developer tells the browser when, when it's time to capture the new state. Then we do the same for the participating elements in the new state. And then think about it as having a whole bunch of image pairs. Like you have image, images that represent the old state, images that represent the new state. We match them by name. And then we can, we have a state of the browser where we have a bunch of images in pseudo elements and we can run CSS on them. 
animate them in any way they, any way we want. So basically what you're saying is that rather than trying to deal with the complication of maintaining two DOM trees inside the session at the same time, you instead deal with it by you looking at it basically as just a collection of images that you can apply all sorts of image transformations on instead. So you're really working with bitmaps rather than with DOM elements. Correct. Very cool. Very interesting. Which means that during the transition, for example, those elements are not live. Like if you have a if you have a one second transition, let's say, or let's say if you have a transition that takes ten seconds, and one of the elements you're animating is a video. You're not going to see the video running during this time. If you have an input, you can't type text into it and the text will will update. This is, a view transition is a morphing of two image collections into each other with certain rules, if you want. So, for example, another example would be, let's say, a link that if you try to click on a link inside the view transition, right. it won't work because it's not the actual link or text. It's just the, the bitmap of that text. Correct. This is a visual effect, which is um, limited in a way, but also what makes it possible. Very interesting. And how do you control, like you said that you break it's not like one big bitmap into another bit big bitmap of the entire screen rather you said it's a, it's a collection of bitmaps right how do you specify that collection how do you tell the browser you know this part of the screen should be one bitmap this you know i don't know maybe the menu should the the header and menu should be one bitmap the footer should be another and so forth this all works with the name matching so when we captured all state, we, we set in CSS uh, names for elements that we want to, part to participate in the animation. And those are the elements that get captured. So those, these names, are they distinct from component IDs, from yeah. uh, the, like CSS class names or stuff like that? They're distinct from those? Yeah, they're defined inside CSS. They're not in the DOM. Oh, I understand. It's, it's more similar to containers uh, when you need container queries and you can name or to a animation keyframe names. It's an internal CSS naming thing. So the DOM is itself is wholly, just to clarify to our listeners, again, if they don't know, uh, the browsers actually maintain two kind of distinct but related and again, Noam, feel free to correct me because you're, I think, more of an expert on this than I am. Uh, the DOM, the browser maintains like two, let's call it distinct trees of objects, you might say. One is the DOM, which represents the HTML elements. And one is the CSS OM, which represents the, the CSS. And these are kind of merged together to build the render tree or something like that. And you're saying, if I understand you correctly, that the whole view transition thing lives wholly within the CSS side of things. You can say that the, the DOM, the, in the end, 
what what matters here is that we resolve the style of a particular element using using all the CSS rules, all the selectors and media queries, all the nice things in CSS. We we end up resolving the current style of a of of a DOM element, uh, and in that resolved style, like like how we resolve whether um, it has a certain font or color, we also resolve. Um, whether it has a view transition name, which means it will participate in the view transition. Then what happens if two things have the same name? Uh, we abort the transition right now. Oh, you abort the yeah, transition. Yeah, skip the transition. Uh, there are thoughts about this for the future to make it a little more uh, flexible, but for now, names have to be uh, unique within the context of the particular transition. So you look at the names in the original state. You yep. look at the name at the end state. Yeah. Uh, names that match, you can specify the animation between them in the CSS, and that's what happens, more yeah. or less? more or less. So all this works with uh, pseudo-elements. So could you explain to our listeners what pseudo elements are? I, I think that maybe m many listeners don't actually <laughs> know what that is. Sure. So pseudo elements are elements that are visual but uh, do not exist in the DOM. So if you just looked at the HTML, you wouldn't see them. But um, they have some uh, representation visually and sometimes in terms of interaction. A good example is the uh, parts of inputs. Uh, for example, uh, there's, I think it's a pseudo element or just a pseudo class. Uh, there's the before and after, I think. Yeah, right? the, 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 those are classics. So for example, the before and after pseudo elements, you can define that a particular div or whatever it is would have additional text or image after or before its regular content. And that text or image is not, if you just look at the HTML, you wouldn't see it, but it's there visually for users, but it's defined as style. I, I kind of joke that with, uh, with uh, the DOM, you can uh, inject CSS into the DOM. Pseudo elements are kind of like the other way around <laughs> in a way. It's like for the CSS to inject stuff into the DOM. In a way, yes, it's a, it's a way to inject content that um, doesn't have a semantic meaning, but only a only a visual or style meaning. And like you don't need the screen readers to know about the pseudo elements, for example. So, how do you use pseudo elements in the context of of view transitions? So, the way this works is that during the transition, after we captured both states, we create a tree of of pseudo elements which are Basically, the images, some of them are the images, and they have some sort of hierarchy. So each two images that match names are in a pair of images. And, and we have a pseudo element for the whole transition. So this allows some sort of orchestration, like a big stage of not your DOM, not your page, but the transition itself. So in that way, you can, because you're using a pseudo element, you can specify the transition animation 
in the same way that you would specify transition animations for regular DOM objects in a lot of ways? In exactly those ways. You can use any type of CSS of a web animation that you want, either the web animation API or CSS animation, or moving them yourself. Um, so, um, yeah, the idea is that when the transition is active, what you actually have is like a fake or a pseudo-DOM hierarchy on top of your regular DOM, and you can style it in any existing way you want. Now, in order to use this goodness, uh, do I need to be uh, an MPA, an SPA, either, neither? <laughs> What's So in version one, which is what shipped the end from, I wouldn't say you need to be an SPA, but those transitions work inside a, a particular document. So if you want to have a transition between pages and you're an MPA, you currently can't do that. Um, this is the current state, and this is what I'm working on in my everyday work is specifying how this would work across pages. So for, for now, so for now, if I want view transitions, I still need to be an SPA in a, in a way like I used to. It's just that my life is a lot easier because I don't need to do all the heavy lifting. Instead, I can more or less just do it in pure CSS. And hopefully by the time you're ready to ship, whatever it is you're doing, we'll already have MPA working. <laughs> so it's in the works. And yeah. yeah, that's really cool. If if we can actually do it between pages, that opens up you know a lot of possibilities. By the way, in this context, I, I understand that the recently released Astro framework yeah. uh, has built-in support for that. And I don't know how how familiar you are with it. A bit. So. So a few questions on that. First of all, my understanding was that Astro is predominantly MPA. So if you're saying that view transitions are currently SPA, how does Astro work with that? It works in SPA mode for Astro. So Astro is able to reuse yeah, they, something that hasn't been quite officially released yet or something like that? No, no, they use the SPA mode. They use the Astro has a mode where the page updates without without switching to the new one. Ah, so it's kind of like, I understand. So it's kind of like mocking an SPA in an MPA environment enough for the transitions to work, something like that? I think just Astro has an SPA mode. I don't know if they call it that. Mm, okay. Uh, you can give us, configure Astro to not update the whole, to not refresh the page. It's just more like an, uh, their mental model is very mpa it doesn't mean that they, but but they do have the whole thing where they capture forms and the links and stuff. Okay. So one quick question for those beer drinkers out there: Is there any IPA support? <laughs> <laughs> and and my second question is: It sounds like you i like you were ideally were going for a model where. JavaScript is wholly not required for it, which 
despite the fact that we are a JavaScript podcast, I'm super happy whenever you can do something sophisticated in the browser and not need JavaScript in order to do it. Yeah, we love uh, jabbing at JavaScript. <laughs> yeah, more jabber, less JavaScript. I think it was Bruce yeah. Lawson who said that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so my question then is, why do I even need framework support for it? Isn't it just CSS that I use regardless of whatever framework I'm using? Um, yes and no. Uh, more no than yes. Um, <laughs> so the CSS, yes, but the, the, remember I said there it's like a life cycle of when do you capture the old state and the new state? And this has to be in a framework called this has to be integrated into the router of the framework. So mm. the, the router is usually the piece in the framework that knows what the, like, let's say if you're doing like full page transitions, the, the router is what knows this is the old state. Now I'm in the new state. We don't know that. It's like the, the user code has to say that. And people who use frameworks usually don't exactly know it themselves. They rely on the framework to do all this stuff for them. So if I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying is that in an MPA, in a, sorry, in a SPA type environment, the concept of navigation is not super well defined. It's not exactly obvious when you left the previous page and when you've fully arrived in the next page. Uh, and you're, you're using a JavaScript-based API in order to indicate that. Yep. Am I correct in my understanding? Yeah. Uh, also in MPA, there is no concept of the navigation is ended. There is no concept of yeah. you're in the new page. Correct. That is a UX concept and a content. It's a concept that's, that uh, whoever builds the content can decide. It's not content that the browser can decide for them. For yeah. That, that's kind of the thing about performance is that you're measuring web page load performance is that you're never sure when page is fully loaded, if yeah. ever. So it's, it's even more so for SPA. So the only thing we can do is you tell us when you're done. That thing. Unload. <laughs> sure. I'm joking. And then you have a restore from BF Cache. And, okay. Exactly. Yeah, I know. I know. It's the, anyway, we had like a, a lot of conversations, philosophical conversations about when is, a, when is navigation done? And the answer is pretty much depends on the content. It's kind of slightly related to, I think, work that uh, Yoav uh, Weiss is, is doing. We actually spoke about this with Barry Pollard a while yeah. back about trying to measure soft navigations in, uh, in, uh, in single-page applications yeah. and, uh, and it directly goes to this whole issue of understanding when pages transition. Yes, I think that's a... What you have is doing is a separate problem because you're not, you don't really care when navigation is done. You just want to measure when uh, the next uh, largest contentful pane appeared on the, on the screen or 
what is the kilometer layer shift after soft navigation. So you don't need to be done for any of that. Um, mm. Also, soft navigations are heuristic, and here we can't really be heuristic. This is like people designing their pages. We want to be clear about what, exactly what's going on. Mm. Um, so in the MPA world, this is a little bit more complicated even because you could be transitioning to a page that is not fully loaded and is progressively loading chunks of HTML from the network. Yeah, especially in these days of React server components and stuff like that. Yes, yeah, so how do you, we know when it's okay to start a transition and what do we do until then? What we do, do we do if it times out? So those are a lot of questions we deal with. We're trying to answer today. I could even foresee a situation in which you may want to even break that transition into parts, like transition Maybe. some stuff and then continue. Like I, I always make that same joke that how can you tell if a web application is a or a web page is a modern web page that it has multiple spinners instead of one big spinner? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. If you you may want to transition each spinner separately, uh, yeah, yeah, we're not there yet, but uh, we'd, we'd be happy to start with a full page transition across documents. But there are some proposals for later about doing this in parts, etc. It's not not easy problem to solve. So I'm looking at the docs because I've you know been listening to this or people talk about it and reading some of the docs and so on. And Dan, you asked a question earlier about how you're trying to do it with just CSS. So, you know, I've looked at transitions trying to do them before and it's like, okay, when I have a couple hours, I'll come back and devote to try to do a, a transition because you're talking about keyframes and, and and lots of other elements. But it makes sense that because you're in the DOM, you also can manipulate with JavaScript, right? You can, uh, I was reading, for instance, in the docs that uh, if there's a specific element that you want to transition different than other elements, I believe there's uh, some JavaScript methods that you can use to do that. So because you're in the DOM, JavaScript's there, right? You can use it. You just don't have to use it if you want to do some basic view transitions. Is that a correct statement? Uh, I would say that if you don't want to use CSS to transition to uh, generate the whole animation, you can use the web animation API, which is JavaScript-based. And well, no, what I was saying is, isn't it, is it possible to do it just with CSS and not have to use any JavaScript, but you can use JavaScript to augment and, and do custom things? Or am I not if, understanding that correctly? For same document, no. For same document, you need JavaScript to at least give us the cues to when the transition started and starts and ends, or to when to capture the old state and new state. Mm -hmm. This is like a uh, the basic thing for same document for multi for multi page applications. You wouldn't need JavaScript. You can do everything with pure CSS. Is our intention? Um, so to what? Like notice that all the named components are there and just trigger the animation, something like that. Uh, we will have a new kind of navigation behavior rule. We're still bike shedding the name. Bike shedding uh, says, <laughs> yeah. That says that if uh, uh, that is kind kind of opt in to view transition in the same between the two pages, and both pages need both documents need to say 
I'm okay with transitioning, uh, with having a good transition to the next page or to all my all the same origin pages or some URL pattern, something like that. So I mentioned before that uh, View Three, which recently came out, uh, uh, not View, sorry, that uh, Astro. Astro Three Three that recently came out introduced uh, support for this. Um, and they were, in fact, it was one of their biggest, let's call it user facing features and one that they were heavily promoting because it's just visually so cool. And, and it certainly got a lot of, uh, people, you know, chatting, at least in my neck of the woods on X, Twitter, whatever you call it. Um, that because there was a lot of chatter there because like I said, you know, Theoretically, you could have done this before on, you know, React, Next, uh, Remix, whatever. But practically, nobody or hardly anybody was doing it because it was so challenging. And all of a sudden, Astro, you know, came out with a whole bunch of super cool demos. I remember somebody building uh, the Netflix-like app. And it looked really like a native mobile app in all, you know, the way that it transitioned between parts. Uh, and, and, you know, it was super cool on one end, but on the other hand, you know, I was thinking, hey, this is really nice, but it's actually a platform feature, not so much an Astro feature. Uh, I think, uh, I think one of the strengths a framework could show to its users developers is we don't block you from using new platform features I'm, yeah. a, I'm totally serious about this if if a framework has something uh, some opinionated things in it that make it so that it's difficult for you to use a new platform feature it's a selling point to the other frameworks can you give a concrete example of something like that yeah in xjs um, which, like, uh, nothing against them. They're, I know they're like, um, we're asking people to vote for the feature, like, they're supportive and working with them. Uh, but I tried very hard to use CSS view transitions with Next.js. And I found that without uh, patching Next.js itself, it's almost impossible. That's interesting. Can you like give a you know high level explanation of why that is? Um, well, for the new app router thing, right? The Next.js just did this big, um, this big refactor uh, to their API. Yeah, the app folder um, React server components. So. Like I said, to, to to make this work with a framework, you need to hook into the router of the framework and understand when a, when a route change starts and when it ends. In the old Next.js, they had hooks for that. And now that they switched to all the new React 18 stuff, they removed those hooks because it doesn't work with the new React model. And... So uh, to make this work, you need to uh, hook into 
how the router works internally. There's no API for it. Um, what you could do is uh, wrap the Next.js router, but then you also need to wrap Next.js links so they access the router internally. So you end up with kind of a Frankenext kind of thing where you have your own links and your own router on top of their router and links. And like, it's not, I wouldn't go down that route. It's not great. Yeah, the routers is the routers in, in multiple frameworks are becoming like kind of, um, like you said, like uh, Frankenstein's monster sort of thing because they're running stuff on the client side, they're running stuff on the server side, the the, the whole thing works, asyn- works asynchronously uh, and additional content is being downloaded as can be downloaded as it becomes available and and yeah it's it's so you know so a lot of it took me a while to understand for example that one of the key things about react server components is that a router running on the client side instigates component rendering on the server side right so and 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 then the response is kind of streamed down which is really Nuts. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the whole thing is quite complicated at this time. Um, for better or for worse, but I think yeah, I think all this stuff came because of actual user need. Um, and there are all kinds of solutions and uh, net, like natural selection of developers brought us to some state where some things are more popular than others. So it's not just the React core team being bored? I think uh, developer preference in framework teams and in web platform teams, et cetera, et cetera, definitely plays a part in all this. Oh, for sure. Uh, uh, all of the things play a part together. I, but uh, I think it would be a bit superficial to say that uh, oh, the React core team were bored so they created something complicated. It, it's, it's like... I say that although things play a part together and it's not easy for like today's complicated web apps to build uh, routers that performs and work well there. So. Oh yeah. A, a lot of things that we're currently doing with routers are things that nobody dreamt about a decade ago, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, type safe router. Who was thinking about type safety in, in front-end developers ten years ago? Uh, so, so I'm I'm totally with you on that. I also think like like I totally agree with your statement that things kind of get a, li- a life of their own. Like you make certain architectural decisions in one point in time, and you know things need and evolve. So I, I you know when. React was created back in 2013. What is it? A decade ago, you know, they weren't thinking about React server components. So, so yeah, they they had to come up with solutions that worked with various architectural decisions that they made at certain points in time in the past. Or, as I say, if things were different, they wouldn't be the same. <laughs> yeah. 
So you were saying that the big thing that you're currently doing in terms of re of uh, uh, view transitions is working on adding support for multi-page applications. Yes. Anything else that that needs to be done? Yeah, uh, I actually um, came back uh, three days ago from something called TPAC. Uh, TPAC is Lucky the annual. You. Yeah, it's uh, the annual conference of uh, browser and standards developers. Uh, really great to to like chat with all the people from Mozilla and Apple and from you know the people uh, from all kinds of companies that use uh, the web and come to be involved in the standards. Um, but uh, the the way I see uh, view transitions today is that uh, they're constrained. They're they're great. They're a lot more freeing than we could do before, but they're still constrained. In that they're uh, the document, the whole document, and nothing but the document. They call it like you have this full page transition of the whole document. So, and we see people using it for different things today. For example, uh, sorting lists in an animated way. Mm. Uh, so, so basically, you're, so basically, what you're saying. Is if I have in the, even in the context of the same page, if I have two distinct states, like we were talking before in the context of Wix, that I want to do some sophisticated hover animation, but not just let's say moving something, but you know actually changing the content that is shown. Why not be able to use view transitions for something like that? Is that what you're saying? Oh, you can do it today, but it freezes the whole page while you do it, and you can't do simultaneous ones. Mm. Uh, so it would behave as if your page is transitioning, and you would be transitioning a part of the page. So currently, it's an all-or-nothing sort of a thing. It's an all-or-nothing sort of thing. Also, in terms of uh, choosing which elements participate, you choose it based on the CSS folder of the whole document. And we want to enable to Kind of tag when you start a transition, kind of choose which transition are you actually going to run, um, and only select select elements that participate in that transition. And so, we want to allow those things. But the the, the most important thing right now is cross document. And I'm guessing the second most important thing, or maybe actually the first most important thing, is getting better cross-browser support. Yes, so we have a positive standards position from Mozilla and Apple on this. And we we can't build it for them. <laughs> you have you personally have done things inside WebKit, as I recall. Yes, I have. I've, uh, I worked full-time on WebKit a long time ago and also implemented standards inside WebKit as a freelance, like uh, Pain Timing, which was charted by uh, Wikipedia a couple of years ago. Um, so it can be done, but it's um, uh, it's not what we're doing right now. We hope 
to empower the other browser engines to do it by themselves rather than us building uh, the whole web just in three different engines. Hmm. Yeah, I'm but, looking at can I use right now. There's a lot of red. Yeah, um, there's, it's definitely a Chrome only right now. Also, well, Chrome and Edge, I would assume. Yeah, yes, Chromium. Edge as well. Uh, the thing is also also very easy to progressively enhance it. Mm. Like you can use a feature, and if you don't have the JavaScript ball to start a view transition, you just go directly to the next state that will just work. Yeah, you just don't get the fancy, cute animation. Instead, it just switches between the pages or whatever, right? Yeah, it was very important for us to think about progressive enhancement the whole way through for this. So that people can build it in their, into their web pages and then it would magically start working in browsers once they implement it. In case any one of our listeners doesn't know what progressive enhancement means, it and again, feel free, Norm, to correct me if I'm wrong, but basically it means that uh, you can enhance the functionality with more sophisticated APIs, usually JavaScript-related, but if those APIs aren't there, don't exist, or you just, for some reason, don't use them, then you fall back to something that is simpler, but still very much works. Something like that, yes. That, um, it, it basically means also that you can have different levels of styling on top of your content. In this case, styling. It could also be yeah. functionality. Right. Functionality or styling. And you can have different layers based on what capabilities or preferences your users or user agents, browsers have. Um, and you don't uh, break the whole thing just because some feature is not available. And obviously, when you're doing something like that, like the view transition, you should respect uh, the user-reduced uh, animations or whatever. Oh, yeah. So there is a CSS media query prefers reduced motion. That's what you mean? Yes. So we don't respect it uh, by default. It's really up to the web developer to do that. Mm. Uh, the reason is not every transition is motion, for example. Um, and uh, what reduced motion is, is a content decision, content and design decision. It's not, a, it's not really up to the browser to decide uh, that the whole transition should be um, off when prefers reduced motion is on. Maybe you're just cross-fading, surprise me. And this whole animation thing, I assume, is like most of CSS is implemented as much as possible on the GPU, which means mm -hmm. that it should be silky smooth even on mobile devices and consume relatively little battery, etc. All the good stuff. Yeah, I would say performance-wise, there is a one big gotcha, which is don't offer capture. Like we saw that in early pieces of the API that people put those view transition names on a lot of elements and capture mm. all of them, and that is expensive to do. Like it, it that can get like a bit uh, frozen if you overdo it. So um, 
So yes, but also need to take care, like with everything in performance. Yeah, and also overdoing animations is usually a bad idea. Yeah, from, from a UX perspective, really, the kind of thing we saw people do with this, um, the main three animation that we kind of saw uh, from partners starting to work with this and from demos, uh, one is like just full page animations, like very basic slides or whatever. Um, the other one was when uh, I call it product expand, like moving from a list of uh, products in an e-com site to a single product and expanding the product image and title. It's a very, or from a playlist to a song, that product expand thing is very, very common in all the demos we saw. Uh, the third one was the like list sorting. And and I think that it's not just uh, a visual nicety. I think that there is an, an actual UX aspect here because when you click, like you said, on a particular product and that product responds to your click and it's very clear which product you're transitioning to, that definitely provides UX value from my perspective. Yes, there are a lot of UX pitfalls in making it confusing, but if you have a good mental model of direction and of relationship between the, the different states and you, um, you apply that to your animations, there are a lot of opportunities there beyond just like, oh, this is cool. Now, if I take a slightly higher view, unless there are more technical details you want to discuss in this context, but if I, I look at, a, at it from a high, uh, higher perspective, it's really interesting to see how in this context there's like the standards work of, of really being able to specify, you know, what the APIs looks li- look like, what the behavior exactly should be, and doing it in a way so that when browsers implement it, and even though each one of them implements it, you know, totally separately using different programming languages, data structures, and whatnot, but obviously by different developers, the end users all experience the same behavior. So there's this uh, uh, standards part, and there then there's obviously the implementation part. I mean, you know, Standard is all nice and good, but if it's not implemented, it's it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. So, um, can you talk a bit about you know how how you balance these sort of things? Because I I know that like you said, you standards are where you're at. So how do you balance this with work that you do with the developers in both inside Google and you know maybe also outside? So I don't work on this alone. We're in a team, and we're all participating and discussing internally and externally how the API should work and finding out places where, oh, this is kind of more difficult to implement or this doesn't make sense in the model of how this works or uh, whatever. So uh, this is all all done with a team of uh, uh, very good engineers from the Chromium side to work on this. and getting input whenever we get it from implementers of Mozilla and the uh, uh, Mozilla of uh, Gecko and WebKit. Uh, so you can say this whole thing is a conversation. And uh, I, I I bring my own like uh, 
I don't know, my own unique stance on it, my own unique background on it from being a web developer in the past, from working on standards in several fields, from knowing some things about the other, about WebKit, especially working with other browser vendors, working on Chromium on another, on other projects. Um, and the other developers in the team bring uh, also the, the know-how of what they need to do next and like how long it's going to take, how complicated things are on the Chromium side. And the whole thing becomes a conversation in the CSS working group. Everything is done by consensus. So we have to reach consensus in the end of how this should work. And don't you actually ever miss the coding part? <laughs> um, actually, no. Uh, but uh, first of all, I do write code in terms of like writing an example and using it, etc. But uh, writing production code on the other projects I work on in web performance, I'm writing the Chromium code. It's a better balance for me at this point to be more like 70-30 standards versus, versus Chromium code. I feel like Chromium code requires a lot of focus, like a lot of concentration. And well, C++. <laughs> yeah, C++, a lot of memory management, very complicated tests, uh, very long builds, like, uh, as in, you know, uh, 20 minutes sometimes. Um, it's not the same as web. Get uh, an M2. It's all down in the cloud, distributed. I'm, I'm joking. Yeah, um, uh, my M1, it will take eight hours, 10 hours. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you a couple of questions, Noam, sure. just about browser development itself. Um, mm -hmm. One, I was listening to another podcast, and I forget which one and who the guest was, but she had mentioned that in the world of the world of developers that actually work on browsers, you know, and implement all the standards in browsers is small enough that they could all fit in a large elevator. And if something happened to that elevator, we'd be in a world of hurt. Like it's a pretty small community of, of developers that actually work on browsers and implementing all this stuff for us to use as front end developers. Sure. So is that true? Is that uh, what is, how would you judge the size of the, the actual browser developer community? Well, it would be a very crowded elevator, I'd say that. Right. But uh, <laughs> uh, I would say people who work in browsers in total would be in the hundreds, mm -hmm. uh, where it's like 80% of them are Chrome. <laughs> uh, oh, interesting. I don't know. I don't know numbers. It's just like, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a big group in Chrome. Mm. Uh, yeah, for years there there have been claims that Apple is underinvesting in in browser development. It's really nice to find. You know, I'm still upset that they're not allowing other browsers on iOS, but at least they're investing much more significantly in their own browser. Yeah, yeah. Jen Simmons seems to have really driven uh, a lot since she's been over there. I I know her name from when she was in the Drupal world many years ago and everything I've seen and maybe this you know isn't accurate but just my observation is since she's been there it seems that things have really picked up a lot from the from the webkit from the Safari side yeah Jen is also a very um, a visible member that there mm -hmm. are there are several key people from the standards community 
that that was hired. I'm very happy about it to see um, to have live dis- lively discussion with the other browser vendors on features is really great. Like uh, sometimes the the Chrome echo chamber is not it's exactly. not something we want internally. Like uh, we would rather it, it happens sometimes because nobody's answering, not because it's what we want. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to your question, it is a small group. It, it's also from those people who work on browsers, how many know the internals like really well? It's a much smaller group. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's a small niche. I'm happy to be part of it. So then the other question is, you know, uh, Dan was mentioning your past, you were, both of you were mentioning your past experience. You had actually been a web developer and then you've mm-hmm. taken that and moved into the the browser world, the standards world. How many would you say, or what's your estimation of how many people that actually work on browsers have actual front-end web development experience? You know, somebody who knows, okay, I'm implementing this. This is the the headaches I've dealt with as a web developer as compared to people that just like tools and, uh, you know, I think, oh, this would be really great, but, you know, really don't have the familiarity with how they would actually use it from a web development standpoint. Very, very few. Very few that don't. So you'd say most of the browser developers there, have web front-end experience no, no, that have uh, actually used it or the other way around? I didn't. Uh, I wasn't doing a double negative. Okay. <laughs> That's a triple negative. Anyway, I've, <laughs> uh, most browser developers don't have significant web developer web development experience. It's kind of a different discipline. And... There are some people uh, that um, are more in the DevRel part of things that uh, kind of try to bridge the gap. Like Jake Archibald was one of them, Jen Simmons. Um, It's just right. There are a lot of people that are kind of in between. Uh, But uh, I think I would like to see more of that. Browser yeah. development community. But, uh, I try to bring that aspect myself as much as I can. That's also part of why I kind of rotated between browser and web development. Just sort of keep your feet in both worlds and being able to understand. Kind of keeping it real. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's also why I joined Wix at the time. Like before that, I never did a big, uh, big web project in terms of production, in terms of something that really reaches millions of users in real time. That's like uh, what was drawing, what was attractive to me at, at going to a web company. Like when you develop browsers, you have releases. It's not like that. It's like you have releases that go through like much slower. Everything is much slower. Yeah, it's it's really funny that the people on whom the whole web is built are not web developers, and the and the the way in which they they develop and and push out software that they create is very much not the way in which web applications are distributed. Yeah, to me, I think of it almost like a. I guess an example is a startup 
you know, they're going to develop some platform and think, oh, this would be great, but they don't do any market research to say, would anybody even use this if we built this great tool? You know, and then they go under because from their standpoint, yeah, this would be a great tool, but in reality, nobody wanted it or needed it, at least at that time. So, but yeah, I mean, I've been on both sides of things where I've been the developer using tools and I've been on the back end one, you know, creating the tools and think this would be great. And so being able to, you know, have your skill set and bridge that divide is certainly uh, a large plus. So, oh, go go on. I would say though that relatively this is not as much of a problem as in other professions. Let's say you're building a tool for dentists and you're not a dentist. Like, uh, right, in in this case, uh, the the tools we're building are at least accessible for us to use in a meaningful way. In a meaningful way, the web is accessible for everyone, so it's also accessible to people who are not professional web developers. So in that sense, we're it's not as bad as another uh, type of uh, software. I'm actually extremely thankful to the engineers working on the platform itself. So first of all, I'm I'm not as certainly not as much as you, but I'm somewhat exposed to them because I'm an invited expert on the W3C Web Performance Working Group. So. I'm I'm less exposed to the actual developers writing the code, but at least I'm exposed to the to the standards process. But beyond that, again, if we are talking about performance for a minute, you know, if I'm looking at the graph of uh, how performance has uh, improved uh, uh, in in recent years, then it seems as as if uh, performance. Uh, has in in terms of of websites that have uh, good core web vitals uh, that the amount has more than doubled in, over the past two two to three years. But in reality, it's mostly thanks to the platform. In fact, if if we take the improvements in the platform out of the equation, I think the line well if in at large, not for specific technologies, but across the board, the line has pretty much stayed the same. Uh, so, so yes, the 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 C plus plus developers are killing it, and I really and I wish that uh, the JavaScript developers were doing as as well. And I'm saying that as as a person predominantly working in JavaScript and TypeScript, and not hardly any, if at all, in C++. I'd say if we're going to performance land, that um, actually frameworks frameworks today are a lot faster than they were. A lot more performance, uh, or, perform, yeah. performance oriented and aware than they were. Um, I think the main, I, I trace a lot of websites now, uh, to find what's making them slow. And I'd say the main, the main uh, problematic player in the performance world today is not so much uh, frameworks or JavaScript developers of apps, but rather the third parties. Uh, the marketing people. <laughs> yeah, the, there are... A lot of uh, sluggishness and responsiveness issues from that sort of thing. 
um, cookie consent stuff, uh, ad, ad brokering, all that. And uh, we're working with a lot of those to raise awareness to that. Because many times what happens is you build your great websites, you went to all the Twitter feeds to find out the the best ways to avoid multiple renders in your in your React app and you use all the fancy new React server components and then you just put in a JavaScript file from some third party because that's your way to make money and then the whole thing you did is meaningless. Like that's what's taking your, your time. Yeah, for us at the next insurance, uh, we were we are loading quite a significant amount of third-party uh, scripts and pixels, and you know it is what it is. We we actually need most of them, if not all of them. And it for us, we basically were forced to use uh, Party Town, uh, and that dramatically improved our, our INP uh, score. So, you know, we are ahead of INP becoming an official core vital. Again, we, we spoke about this um, with Barry Pollard uh, a few weeks back. And, you know, th- this made a, a, a much bigger impact than any improvement that we've done inside our own code. So I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you on that. I can't say, I, I definitely, rec- by the way, to our listeners, I definitely recommend checking out Party Town if you're using a lot of uh, pixels. Uh, but do take into account that it is far from trivial to get it to, to work properly. All right. So we're sort of hitting the end of our time here. So uh, we'll wrap up and move to picks. Before we do that, uh, Noam, is there any, anything else that we haven't discussed that you wanted to throw in real quick? I think we're good. I want to to make one observation before we finish. Um, I think that view transition is yet another example of several super exciting things that are taking place in CSS land. Uh, it seems that in in especially in the in the past year, uh, a lot of the advancements in the platform have been around CSS related things. So view transition, container queries, um, uh, nested uh, uh, CSS. I'm sure I'm missing some stuff. Um, a lot of uh, there's there are even some additional things that haven't landed yet, like the ability to um, uh, kind of position things relative to each other. Um, uh, I'm forgetting the, the technical term for it. Anchor positioning. Anchor positioning. Yeah. And again, if I'm thinking about the work that we did at Wix, that would have simplified things so much, like getting rid of 80% of Wix's code, more or less, mm-hmm. uh, with with a few CSS tags, one, if and when it actually works. So I'm I'm super excited about a lot of the things that are being introduced in the platform in the context of CSS. All righty. Well, thanks, Noam, for coming and talking to us about this as someone who is more CSS challenged or fancy stuff challenged in the front end. This would be something more definitely worth playing with. Actually make my stuff look really good. 
So we'll move on to picks. Picks are part of the show where we get to talk about anything we want to talk about within reason, of course, and FCC guidelines. So it uh, could be tech, could be non-tech, uh, could be whatever you want. Uh, since AJ's talked so much this episode, we'll let him go first. You got anything for us, AJ? Uh, yes, I've got, I've got one and a half things, I think. So I went to see Gran Turismo and I was very surprised because I was expecting it to be kind of a cheap action flick in the way that, uh, let's say, I mean, Transformers is, is kind of in its own category of bad, but I was just, I was just kind of expecting like normal whiz bang stuff. And instead what I got was Rocky race car edition. And I loved it. And I don't know that I loved Rocky. <laughs> I don't even know if I've seen Rocky, but you, you kind of get like Rocky is a male drama. And that's what Gran Turismo is. It's not really a video game slash gamer movie. It's not, it's, it's just not, it's not what I expected. I was just kind of seeing something to pass the time. And then both of us, we ended up just really, really loving it. And so. I don't, I don't want to make it sound too good because then, you know, you go and you see it and you're like, oh, it wasn't that great. But just, just from the, the trailer, I thought, okay, it'll be an all right movie. And instead what I found was it was a really, really good movie that was so focused on the plot and the story and the character development that it, they couldn't have gotten a PG 13 rating and except for that, they just had to throw in a random F word in the middle of it for no reason, because otherwise it, it might've been G because it was like just about the story. It was just about the hero's journey. And, um, I really liked it. So I'll pick that. And then I mentioned before I've been listening to the, the Susan Venker podcast, which is, she's a, a relationship coach. Her, her slogan is something like, be countercultural. She's like a feminist. And then there's a, a similar woman that I uh, was listening to as well, Alison Armstrong. And there's some there's some men also, but uh, I, I think that it's a little bit there's there's some value in hearing these things from from women, I guess. And, uh, it's just been, it's been really good and I've taken some tips and, uh, seen an improvement in the quality of, of my marriage over the past couple of weeks and, uh, hope that, you know, that, that continues. It's nice to feel closer and get some of that, you know, man brain, woman brain stuff a little better understood so that that natural conflict that occurs can be not not so confusing <laughs> now when you said gran turismo i started thinking clint eastwood that was out of fear but that's gran torino i think so but they're both very grand i guess all right dan what do you got for us well so uh i think in in the last podcast that we recorded well, my pick was about the whole typescript versus javascript kerfuffle and the and Twitter slash X not being content 
with just one kind of uh, storm, shit storm, pardon my French, uh, decided to start a couple of new ones. So um, another one was the whole recent thing about uh, Bun versus Node. Uh, hmm. Bun 1.0 was released. And by the way, this is a, a great point to remind everybody that UAJ had an amazingly great interview one-on-one with the Bun creator slash main, main developer uh, a few weeks back. Yeah, that was really, really good. I really enjoyed that. I was sad you guys weren't there, but we we had a really good show. Yeah, it it was it was definitely great. Uh, the, I said that I, on the one hand I was really sad that I couldn't participate. On the other hand, it was really great then that I could watch it, or uh, given that I didn't see it before live. So yeah, so yeah, I highly recommend for uh, to, for people uh, you know anybody who might even consider using Bun actually go and listen to that but anyway the point was that bun one came out and a lot of people that didn't really look at bun before started looking at it and people started tweeting about it or xing about it whatever you call it and i remember the one in particular where uh, uh some uh person basically said does you know after using bun does nobody else even care about performance because all our tests using Bun were so much faster than the, those same tests that she did using Node. Now, the thing is, is that it got a lot of Node maintainers really upset. Now, you know, before you say right. anything, a lot, yeah, I thought you'd say that, but do <laughs> take into account that a lot of these Node maintainers are, you know, they're not getting paid. They're Which doing, is a problem. And so you've got this guy doing thankless job of trying to get Node to work faster and doing it in his free time, getting absolutely zero appreciation, zero pay, and then all of a sudden getting all the shit, all the shit dropped on his head on Twitter. Like, you don't actually care about performance because Bun is killing you. And, and, you know, you, it, it's an interesting discussion of why Bun is able to be that much faster than Node. I'm not going to go there. We don't have the time for it. But a lot of those Node maintainers were basically saying the, something along the lines of, F you, if you don't appreciate what we're doing, then we just won't do it anymore. And that's certainly not what we want to happen. We don't want all the Node maintainers to basically abort. Uh, so, so yeah, so that thing happened. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that having bun as an alternative is overall definitely a good thing. And, and uh, bun does have money and node. Yeah, doesn't. it's deeply funded. Exactly. And, but node was the same way, but node just had so many community issues and, you know, it, so I, I think it's, uh, well, you know, you know, I think Bun is great. I'm really excited to see where it takes us. I don't care if Node dies because, well, it, it was never really that good other than that it was just exponentially better than everything else. You know, for as much as that can make any sense. It's, it's also the fact that things can be done better yes, when, yes, when yes. you're starting from scratch 
and, and you and know all compat- of the history and backwards compatibility is less than an issue. Bond did make certain architectural decisions that have backward compatibility implications. You can't always just use it. It's great when you can, but sometimes you can't. Uh, it's it's interesting. Certainly, it's shaking things up. So that that's the, my first pick. My second pick uh, is is you know what? I know Norm that you you you're short on time, so I'll skip my other picks, hand over to you, and then I'll come back to me later on. Yeah, I have to drop, so I'm sorry, but um, uh, my pick is uh, in in honor of uh, Chuck. My pick is the state of Utah, because <laughs> uh, uh, they allow uh, Zoom weddings, and um, I um, we had our big wedding a while back, but we never made it official, and now with and in Israel, it's all like uh, difficult and irritating. So being able to do it with Zoom, but by the state of Utah in a totally official way, is a plus one for Utah. So. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Yom. If you need to to drop, that's good. I, uh, I can see your door opening behind you. I've had mine open yeah. twice here <laughs> during this recording. Right. So bye, Nom. Thank you very much. Bye, bye. So I'll resume. Oh. I'll resume my picks because I do have uh, uh, a bit more. So as if that whole bun versus note thing was not enough, we got. We then got this whole issue around Unity licensing. Uh, I don't know if you've heard that one. So Unity, for those who don't know, is uh, one of the leading 3D engines used in a lot of games to do all the the cool rendering stuff then you can just put in the game logic and somebody else can deal with all the uh, heavy lifting of the 3D scenes and and whatnot. And they made a very significant licensing change and they even made it even more significant by making it retroactive. So it impacted anybody who's ever used Unity. You know, even if you're using some older version and you thought you were okay with it, it still applies to you. And the change that they made was that effectively you need to pay them for every download. So it's not even for every user. It's not for registered user. It's not for somebody even playing with the game. It's enough that somebody downloaded the game and you need to pay them a licensing fee. Now, think what this does to people who are using some sort of a freemium model, for example. Of letting people pay for play for free, but then uh, buy an upgrade. Well, all of a sudden you, you pay for that. You need to pay Unity for that free version, or if you're creating some sort of an open source thing, I don't know. And and or or for example, if you have a competitor that annoys you, then just create a bot that <laughs> downloads their game <laughs> a million times and get them and, and have them go bankrupt. So uh, now it seems that they're kind of backpedaling on that because people basically told them that, you know, they should go after themselves with that uh, thing. Uh, And hopefully this whole thing (laughs) gets resolved because replacing uh, 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 the engine inside your game is not an easy undertaking. It's not something that you can just rip and replace because, you know, they they lost sense or something like that. 
And my final pick is that it kind of gets, you know, I'm looking at all these uh, uh, technological arguments and kerfuffles and whatnot, and it's kind of difficult for me to get all in an, in an uproar about them when here in Israel we've got a debate going on on whether or not we should remain a democracy. That seems to be, you know, somewhat more significant. Oh yeah, that and the ongoing war in Ukraine support the people of Ukraine. And those are my picks for, for today. Over to you, Steve. Yeah, well, in regards of what to what you were talking about, unity, I've been reading all that, see some of the articles on Hacker News and so on. And this is, sounds along the lines of what I think it was Red Hat did with one of their Linux distros recently. They changed the licensing. Um, and I don't remember all the details. I'd have to go back and look it up. But as soon as I saw this thing with Unity, I'm like, oh man, somebody else is doing the same thing, trying to change the light licensing. And and with the Red Hat case, I think it was uh, where somebody forked it and said, okay, we're going to create our com- own community edition and applied to Apache to become part of the uh, nonprofit uh, through that whole structure. So it uh, seems... I don't, hopefully there's not a third one coming down the pipe, you know, since things supposedly happen in threes, but I keep hearing more and more about stuff like this where uh, large entities that own an open source product are changing the licensing and really harming those people downstream for sure. And obviously there's, with anything, there's going to be two sides of the story. Maybe it's, you know, financial issues and they need to squeeze more money out. But uh, it seems to me that sometimes people don't, really think through some of the implications of the changes they make when they have so many dependent users, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, my picks. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned a show I'd been looking forward to, and it wasn't out. And then in the process of that, I caught another episode that show that I really liked called The Spy that was based on Ailey Cohen. And so the show that I was looking forward to on Netflix called Spy Ops uh, was released on September 8th. And I've watched a few episodes of it. It's really, uh, really quite interesting. They're all uh, true histories, uh, true stories of uh, different ops from different spy agencies. Probably the uh, one of the first episodes has to do with uh, MI6 from Britain and how they got at uh, Oleg Gordievsky. I always forget his last name. In 1985, right from under the nose of the KGB. Uh, and it's quite an interesting story. It involves um, a woman uh, spy changing her baby's diapers to throw off the scent of a spy dog that was about to catch him in the trunk right before they they went to into Finland and crossed over the border into Finland. Very quite ingenious. But the other one that I wanted to see and was fascinating to watch was the story of Mossad, Israel's uh, agency, and how they went after the uh, members of Black September who killed all the nine Israeli athletes during the 1972 Munich Olympics yes. uh, by very, uh, very, very kidna- sad story. kidnapping them. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story. That There's actually two episodes dedicated to it. And one is the bombing or the kidnapping itself and how everything fell apart uh, in Munich when they were trying to rescue them. And then the second yeah. part is how over the subsequent years... Uh, Mossad went after the the uh, members of Black September, and <laughs> the saddest part, and I didn't realize this till I watched this episode, and hopefully it's not too much of a spoiler, is how bad they screwed up going after the last guy. Yeah, 
and they got the guy, the innocent guy in uh, uh, Hawaii, Denmark. I believe. Yeah. yeah, Denmark. He was a musician, and what's fascinating is how uh, the guy who got my mistake, his brother was a musician. Now he came into the story later, um, became an envoy for UNICEF or the UN. I can't remember. Um, in the late nineties when all this, uh, a lot of this was resolved, but really great stories, fun to watch, especially since they're real and they're not, you know, not just made up spy stories. You might also want to see there were, there was a movie made, to be honest, I didn't see it. So I don't know if it was good or not, but if that's kind of your jam, um, there's an interesting the movie around, um, how they captured, uh, Adolf Eichmann. Yes, in South America, and and smuggled them for to trial in Israel. I've watched that movie, and I actually have the book. So, uh, the book is called Eichmann in My Hands, and it's written by the guy I forget his name, Dan something, uh, who told all about how they did it. And then the movie was actually fairly accurate because I watched the movie after uh, the book, and it's called um, The Man Who Captured Eichmann. Uh, but really, those are really great stories too. Really great stories uh, that I've always liked. So now into more lighthearted stuff, we will go with the dad jokes of the week to wrap up today's episode. So recently I went to my doctor and he told me that I have high blood pressure and short-term memory loss. I'm just glad I don't have high blood pressure. Uh, The other day I called my local dairy and asked them to deliver milk to me so that I could take a bath in it because milk baths were supposed to be really good. And they said, would you like it pasteurized? I said, no, just enough for up to my neck. Oh, man. And then finally, uh, I decided to jump into the book authoring business and I'm writing a book on reverse psychology. Please don't buy it. (laughs) That's a good one, actually. (laughs) So. Those are the dad jokes and picks of the week. Uh, thank you to Noam for coming on. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to stay, but for a front-end developer like me, I'm really looking forward to being able to use that view transition API. Yeah, I'm really for excited sure. about these things. It's a lot of good, like I said, a lot of good things happening in CSS land and things that are actually usable. Yes. And, and worthwhile. Yes, for sure. Thank you, Dan and AJ, for joining me. And we will talk to you all next time on JavaScript Jabber. Bye.